And now, live, it's time. Which team, by colors alone, is identifiable around the world? It's time for the JT The Brick Show. Which team, by slogan, commitment to excellence? On Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. Just win, baby. All those things are the Raiders. Here's your host, JT The Brick. Oh, JT, back with you. Hour number two of the show. It's a thrilling to be on Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. However, you're picking up the show, maybe on the app. Uh, the Raiders mobile app or 920 or the Las Vegas Sports Network. We're brought to you by Modelo, an official cerveza of the Las Vegas Raiders. Modelo Especial is brewed with time, effort, determination to create the model Mexican lager. Everyone knows that hard work deserves a fitting reward. A Pilsner-style lager with a crisp, clean taste. Uh, Jim Plunkett will join us every Friday at 1230. So we have Jim coming on tomorrow. Uh, brought to you by Modelo as we get you ready for the Eagles. As Eagle fans are rolling into town as we speak. Seth Wickersham is going to join us coming up here. The senior writer for ESPN, the author of It's Better Be To Be Feared. Uh, that top best-selling book that is out there now about Belichick and Brady. We'll talk to him. Also, Vic Tafer in about 20 minutes. And we'll get you all fired up for the Eagles as they come to town. Seth is kind enough to join us. And Seth, first off, congratulations. It must be great to see your name and your book on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. Hey, thanks. Uh, you know, it's, it's super cool, and, um, you know, it's been a fun, been a fun couple of weeks. Thank you. Uh, you know, Seth, I've covered this from all my years being on EEI, the Sports Hub, uh, being on radio up in Boston. I've always been fascinated by Belichick and Brady. Belichick starting off mm-hmm. under Parcells with the Giants, Lawrence Taylor. He's always been a winner, and one of the things that I find fascinating about your book, before so, but even now, people are debating who's better, Brady or Belichick. Since the book came out, are you amazed by how many more people are trying to debate the difference in both of them and who's actually bigger or better? Yeah, I get that question a lot, and I think that, um, you know, I think it has to do with the fact that obviously Brady's making winning look so easy, and the Patriots are struggling to win and have struggled to win for more than a season now, even after all the money they spent in the off season. And so, you know, people look at it as like a, almost a weekly diminishment of Belichick's legacy and accomplishments. But, you know, the book I think is really interesting because when Brady and Belichick came into each other's lives, it was at a pivotal moment in each of their careers. You had Belichick who was really on his last chance to be a head coach and, you know, had seen his, his life be annihilated in Cleveland when the Browns moved. And then you have Brady who, who nearly went undrafted and they seemed to understand what they had in each other when th- that kind of magical thing happened. And it was, it was accidental, but, you know, the fact that they just, you know, that they, they understood that they needed each other to do what it is that they wanted to do. And really, the book itself is about, you know, how that greatness came to be, what the DNA of it was, and then finally, what the cost of that greatness was. Seth Wickersham's our guest. What I find fascinating is, I've always said this, it's just my opinion, that the Patriots didn't want Brady. If they did, they would have took him in the fifth round. They would have took him in the fourth. They would have traded up to get him in the third. So talk about that pick in hindsight and how much credit Mr. Kraft, but especially Belichick gets for when they pulled the trigger there because every team in the league could have jumped in front of it, and then there's no such thing as Belichick and Brady. 
Yeah. You know, I think that Belichick won the lottery, but he understood that he won the lottery, you know, and he developed the hell out of Tom Brady. And I, you know, at the moment, you know, at the time though, it didn't look like he had necessarily won the lottery. Like Belichick has said on the record that what they saw of Brady as a rookie, he maybe should have been picked in the fifth round. Mm -hmm. I have this scene in the book about how the coaches would, would have, what they called opportunity periods for players after practice who, who didn't get any reps during practice so they could, you know, perform for the coaches. And, and Eric Mangini, who was the defensive backs coach, and Brad Seeley, who was the special teams coach, would coach offense and defense during the opportunity periods and would bet money on who would win. And whoever betted against Tom Brady ended up winning because Tom was just throwing balls in the dirt the entire time. There was nobody who saw you know, what Brady became other than Brady. But that said, Belichick realized very quickly that Brady was special. I write about it a lot in the book, and and he had that pivotal moment twice in the season. Once midseason when he decided to stick with Brady after a loss, after a loss when the offense didn't even play very well, over Drew Bledsoe, and then finally he stuck with him again in the Super Bowl. And I think that after that, obviously – they were two men who understood that to win games, they needed each other until, of course, years later, decades later, when they didn't. Seth Wickersham's our guest, the best-selling book, It's Better to Be Feared. Yeah, this is what fascinates me about this, because Belichick's ego, early in Brady's success, what can you tell us about that? Because there's a lot of coaches in the league who would be saying, that's my guy. Look at how I developed him. He's won two Super Bowls. Now three. We're going to win four. That's never been Belichick. So Belichick really never took a lot of credit for the success of Brady with the media. How did he handle it behind closed doors? Well, they would meet twice a week. And, you know, I, again, I think that even though Brady obviously was special, you could tell that. But Belichick did develop him well and they would meet twice a week and go through every defensive back that they were going to face and, you know, come up with route combinations that would exploit those defensive backs. And then they would meet on Saturdays. That was on Tuesdays. Then on Saturdays they would meet and go over the game plan again. And really, even though Brady later felt that he didn't get as much influence over the offense as he wanted, he had a big role in that. Like in 2007, for instance, the year they, they nearly went undefeated, Brady ran the offensive meetings the night before games. Josh McDaniels would sit down. And it was so clear that it was Brady that the players feared the most and wanted to please the most. And so I think that, like, Belichick did, by and large, I mean, even Ernie Adams really worked a lot with Tom Brady. They really worked on him in terms of finding out what his weaknesses were and trying to figure out solutions for those weaknesses so that the best defensive coordinators around the league could never really figure out a way to solve Brady. Seth, it's incredible because a lot of people think Belichick's miserable in preparation because he leaves no stone unturned. How did Brady balance his personal life, Giselle Bunch and his kids, seeing his first son with, with this intensity around him all the time. It seems to me, and can't wait to dive more into it in the book, that he had a balance in his life, even with Belichick grinding him the entire time, and now he's so much looser down in Tampa Bay. When did it get to the breaking point in your reporting where Tom Brady just wasn't having that much fun and it was obvious to everyone? Yeah, that was after the 2017 season, I think. But, you know, but Brady, 
yeah, you know, Brady would say, you know, well, I'm on Belichick time during the season. So, you know, his time wasn't his own, but he's as obsessed as Belichick was. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that made them so compatible is that there was no off season for either of these guys. They were constantly thinking of ways to improve. And really, you know, the 10 year drought when they didn't have a Super Bowl championship was, was really a time when Brady, he started to, both men reevaluated their entire belief system, but Brady seemed to de- you know seemed to separate a little bit from the Patriot way, right? He started to develop the TB12 method. He spent more time out in LA in the off season. He he was with Alice Guerrero all the time, and they they were really building a business and and doing things that were outside of what the Patriots did. He he was no longer winning that coveted parking space for the top off season attendance. So then you have 2017. There was all kinds of problems in the building that year. Brady wanting a contract until he was age 45, and the Patriots not wanting to give it to him. Jimmy Garoppolo and Belichick invested in him. Alex Guerrero and TB12, and the fact that Belichick had to kind of curtail Guerrero's access around the building. Finally, then they go out and they lose to the Eagles in the Super Bowl, even though they put up 600 yards of offense and don't punt. And Brady was really tired of Bill. And he didn't want to play for Bill anymore. And he mm-hmm. skipped the entire voluntary offseason program that year and really wanted his release. And Kraft at first said, no, I'm not going to give you your release. And then he came back and said, yeah, I will if you really want to go. But then by that point, Brady had kind of changed his mind and was like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to make it work here. Seth Wickersham, as we wrap it up, it's better to be feared. New York Times best-selling book. It's out, released nationally on October 12th. You can get it everywhere, Amazon.com, all major bookstores. So when you were doing your research, the Patriots seemed so enclosed and tight and so buttoned up. When did people get a sense that you were going to write such a big book? And not that it was going to be decisive, but it would be Kraft, Brady, and Belichick. And everybody's looking at you as you're asking questions and you're building the backstory. When did you start to feel a little bit of pushback, and who did you get the, get it the most from? Well, uh, Belichick, Brady, and Kraft did not cooperate on the record for the book, and I make that very clear. Um, but they didn't stop me from talking to anybody. There was nobody who I wanted to talk to who said, no, I can't talk to you because Bill won't let me or Tom doesn't want me to or whatever. And so I felt like that I had a really good base of information and experience to go off. Like, you know, I started covering the Patriots, Tom and I both graduated in 2000, and one of my very first assignments for ESPN Magazine was up in Foxborough writing about, you know, this guy who was filling in well for Drew Bledsoe and, you know, was surprising the league a little bit. And, you know, I met him at the old Foxborough Stadium. He, he was wearing a gray sweatsuit and had a backpack that was full of beer because he had lost a bet in the Michigan-Michigan State game. And I'll never forget, he said, you know, football's always come easy to me. And I was like, who says that? This six-round guy who's probably going to go back to the bench when Bledsoe's healthy. But it's like, it is so obvious that he knew something about himself back then that even those closest to him didn't know. And between experiences like that and going to his house and Super Bowl parties and having late night conversations with Belichick and just covering the league for 20 years and knowing people inside the building and out, I felt like I could put together a good book. Uh, Last one, Seth, when I look at this and I look at the history of both these gentlemen, when you look at the end, does it feel like Brady's just playing with house money, seven Super Bowls, maybe he gets eight, but I don't know if Tampa Bay's going to win this year, but what will drive Belichick post-Brady, in your opinion, more than anything? Well, he's always had a lot of pride in what he does, and 
you know, when he's always said privately, when when he when I walk away, I want the team to be set up with like a good roster and a and a solution at quarterback. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was so invested in Jimmy Garoppolo because for a long time he thought that was that guy that Jimmy was. But you you know, Bill Walsh, for instance, when he retired from the San Francisco 49ers after the '88 season, you know, he was kind of secretly hoping that team would collapse without him. And instead, of course, they go 14 and two and win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Belichick's different. Like he wants when he transitions out of this, and maybe it'll be after this year. I, I don't know. Nobody knows. But he wants to hand over to his successor a good team and a solution at quarterback, so that he can say his legacy was always making interests that he felt were best for the team. Thank you, Seth. Looking forward to talking to you. I'm happy we could knock this out. Uh, continued success with the book and your next project. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Seth Wickersham. Uh, the book is out. It's better to be feared. It was just released nationally. It's number one on the New York Times in this category and tremendous success. He sent me an advanced copy and I'm a chapter in and I'm going to knock out most of it on my trip to New York next week. It really is fascinating what this book is about, considering what the Raiders have just gone through with the transition of coaches. I mean, isn't it? Does Can I make that combination, the connection between former head coach Gruden and Carr trying to just get to the playoffs compared to the connection of Belichick and Brady winning six Super Bowls. You know, I've gotten to know Charlie Weiss over the years, uh, doing some fill-in radio shows on Sirius with him, and he was really an architect of the success of Brady. Remember when Brady was a backup, really a fourth string, he was working with Charlie Weiss and trying to get ready to be a backup, uh, from a third string to a backup. And then after the Mo Lewis hit of Bledsoe, and Bledsoe could have died. The hit by Mo Lewis that knocked uh, Bledsoe out. And Bledsoe was a hell of a quarterback, a Pro Bowl quarterback. He was very good, very good. And then Brady gets his chance, and Brady was prepared. He was prepared because of Belichick. So as everybody sits there and goes, who's more important, Phil Jackson or Michael Jordan? Most people would say Jordan. Then you look back at who was more important, Wayne Gretzky or some of his coaches back then, Glenn Sather. Everybody would say Gretzky. But when you think of the greatest football player of all time, Tom Brady, who's more important, Brady or Belichick? And I can easily argue the fact, in my opinion, it's Belichick. Because without Belichick, there's no Brady. Without the actual pick, Belichick doesn't get Brady in the sixth round, and he goes in the fourth round to Carolina or somewhere else, wherever the team is, it's over. Brady doesn't win seven. He might win one. Now, I've always said that Brady would have won if he went somewhere else. If Brady got drafted as a backup somewhere else, I think his work ethic has proven that his success would have came, but it just would have came a different way. But Belichick would have been successful. He was very successful and close to being more successful in Cleveland. We forget that that franchise was moving in disarray as Cleveland was moving to Baltimore, and he had a very good staff and a good team. He would have found a way to win with the Jets or New England. But Brady, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Who, who's better? These conversations are fascinating to me, and I think, to be fair, you split it down the middle. Belichick's going to be the greatest coach of all time, passing Lombardi, Shula, and all the greats. You can't argue that because of his two coordinator Super Bowls, with Bill Parcells, and then his six with Brady. So eight Super Bowls and the success he's had. And Brady went from being maybe the greatest quarterback of all time with Montana 
to the greatest quarterback of all time and now the greatest football player and winner of all time. There's no more debate on Brady. And I don't think there's much of a debate on Belichick. I'm just really fascinated on how many people are just so crazy to say to me and call me and say, well, you know, there's no such thing as Belichick if it isn't Brady. Really? I was just in the Hall of Fame archives, and Belichick has got this long career. It started with the Detroit Lions before he got to the Patriots. He's a football lifer, and Brady's the greatest of all time. Can't we let them both live with that success? Why do we have to tear down one or the other and make the other one better when they both equally helped each other get to greatness? Thanks again to Seth, who's done a little bit of rated. Happy we were able to get him. Uh, By the book, it's better to be feared. Vic Tafer. Coming up, we'll talk to Vic about what's happening with the Raiders and their personnel, the depth chart, injuries, and the preparation of what's going to happen with Philadelphia here in town as we're brought to you by Sam and Ash. Sam and Ashley joined us yesterday. It was fantastic to talk to them. If you need a personal injury attorney, 702-820-1234, SamandAshLaw.com. Uh, when the game came, it really felt like it was back to normal, honestly. Uh, once once we put the pass on and everybody, and we looked at each other in the locker room, really it was the day before the game. Um, when, when Coach had us all, like we had a players meeting, um, and we kind of looked at each other and we kind of talked about everything, how we felt and how we wanted to, um, what we wanted to achieve and, and what, what the main goal was, regardless of who was coaching and who, and who wasn't. Um, that kind of set everybody like in the right uh, state of mind. JT back with you, Josh Jacobs, and what happened from Denver now as we lead into Philadelphia. Vic Tafer from the Athletic Raider Insider, kind enough to join us. And Vic, uh, let's talk about Denver before we get to Philadelphia and all your years of covering this team. What stood out to you? Because you've been on a lot of journeys with this team, saw some controversy, coaching changes, personnel changes in the past. What were some of the big takeaways from the Denver game? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was like, you know, like Lasagna said, was that the continuity and the coaching staff was really key. I think they're having the same staff besides John, having the same playbook. They obviously made some tweaks, but kind of like you know, the reasons why you guys are 3-0 and are still here, they're still, you know, the roster and the players are still there, so we can definitely come together and, and do this. And that was kind of the collective mindset, and I think it really showed in that game on Sunday. He's not very comfortable talking about coaching style. He's not into it at all. He almost shut me down with that because, you know, he just wants to tie into all these other coaches. I think him being an assistant head coach, Vic, really helped him for this opportunity. What are you sensing that the other coaches on the staff think of him in this leadership role? Yeah, I think they've been for a long time. Obviously, they're all close. So I think they're kind of in this together. Obviously, Rich is in charge, but I think they have all the ownership of this kind of getting through this little crisis they had and kind of coming out on the other side. So I think the chemistry and the continuity and having kind of like a similar mindset as what needs to be done has definitely been key so far. Vic for senior writer of The Athletic. It's too early to say if you noticed a bunch of things, but did you notice anything a little bit about Carr and his demeanor? I mean, there are a lot of deep throws, big plays with the, was the difference in this game. But I thought Derek had a lot on his plate, obviously tying up what happened with John and, and getting through that and then preparing for Denver and have to get into that game plan quickly. And then he had a lot of success. What did you see from Carr? Yeah, I think it took a, you know, it showed a lot in terms of leadership, him and some other players, kind of like they took the, the bull by the horns. I think 
we saw more play action. We saw him like definitely take some chances down the field, which he's done earlier in the year also. But I just think maybe I don't know if he has more freedom, but not more yeah. freedom as far as the, the you know, play call. I think that's kind of the same as responsibilities haven't changed too much. But maybe in terms of doing things and not worrying as much about the reaction when you're going back to the sidelines. Maybe not worrying as much as what what John would say if a play didn't go the way it was drawn up or a throw was off or maybe he threw a you – know, maybe it's a little less of a – I don't want to say pressure, but a little less of a, a constraint you, you may feel now. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, anybody who supported Coach Gruden as a coach could see that. It's just a much more intense sideline when he's coaching. He's more in your face and, you know, more trying to adjust to it quickly. And with Rich Passaccia, you know, I've only saw one game, Vic. You were there. I was on TV. I thought there was a level of calmness that really helps out the offense. And did you see a, a tweak in the offensive line? Because I thought there were going to be a lot more collapses or at least Derek going down in that game. What did you see in the offensive line and the improvement uh, since the Chicago game, what we saw in Denver? Yeah, I think they're making strides. They definitely were a little better. I think Leatherwood played well. Probably Alvey James' is the best game this year. So I think just like yeah. pad level, I mean, that's I mean, it sounds like basic stuff, but that was definitely a key a focal point, they were better at that. And I also think the Broncos' D-line for all the, the big names and hype is kind of disappointing all year long. I mean, they were also, you know, from their perspective, this week as well. So I think it was a good matchup for them. And the confidence has to be a lot better now than it was, say, two weeks ago. Vic Tafer's our guest. Hey, Vic, I'm struggling to figure out what's next for Josh Jacobs when it comes to production. What do you think it's going to take? Is it the amount of carries? Is it the offensive line and the health? Is it another draft class and free agency with the offensive line? So he could be averaging 85, 90 yards a game, have several games of 130, 150 like other running backs, not a ton of them, but have been able to do. What is going to get him to the next level? Well, the main thing is health. I mean, you mentioned that they had a padded practice on the Wednesday. And it's the best he's felt on the Wednesday, the fastest he's felt on the Wednesday in a long time. So, for me, there's always been, you know, and I think he's, he gets mad when I say this or write this, but there's always a durability issue with him, which I think he's a phenomenal back and has all the talent in the world, but he has to prove he's durable, which is part of, you know, life in the NFL as a running back. So I think having now, maybe being healthy, have a clean bill of health here in week seven, maybe you can actually have, like you said, get some numbers together and put, start stacking up some good games back to back. Vic, it felt like the team's getting healthier. You'd know that. You look at the injury report very closely here. And then Mullen, the injury with Arnett. They bring in Trufant. So as the offensive line's getting healthier and that rotation on the defensive line, what should Raider fans be concerned about with the secondary and the health of that unit? Yeah, I mean, Trufant's going to play. I think they, they clearly you know, they, they saw – I mean, Meek Robertson had a nice camp, but you see why there were concerns at 5-9. It's just tough. There's a reason there are a lot of short cornerbacks in the NFL. It's definitely tough. But I think that may be the way they go with Trufant being the third guy now. And he's been cut twice in the last year. So he's not the player he was, but a veteran guy, knows the system. Maybe he'll be able to step in and play well like other guys have this year. Wrapping up with Vic Tafer. So, Vic, take me back to the Chicago game and what you saw as that game developed in all three phases and why the Raiders didn't have much in that game. Some people compare it to the Gruden email, the first wave, the first one that came out, a distraction. And then we see the all three phases play well in Denver. I mean, do you compare the Chicago game similarly to Philadelphia when it comes to their toughness, personnel, and a young quarterback who's going to run first before he throws? Yeah, I think it's definitely a, a similar challenge. I think the, the, the thing with the Chicago game, people talk about maybe they weren't like you know as mentally up or fired up because of the email. But to me, people forget, like, the two Edwards drops, so he makes those catches – 
they might win that game. No one's talking about that. It's one of those things you kind of focus on things after the fact, forgetting some details. But I thought the defense was fired up in that game, and I'm sure they will be again this week. So for me, it all starts with the D-line, and they've been great this year. And if they're, if they're good again, they're great again against you know, Jalen Hurts, they should be in good shape on Sunday. Yeah, Vic, last one. What's at stake here? You know these insiders in other markets. You look at the bye week in between Philadelphia and the Giants. We know those teams are struggling. It's a lot at stake here. They took a step back in the loss to Chicago, two steps forward with the win at Denver. How big is this game nationally? You know, they're talking about Tennessee and Kansas City and maybe some bigger games out there, but this is a big moment for the Raiders if they want to get halfway to 10 wins and everybody around the country talks about them again as a playoff team. Yeah, I agree. Definitely, people have doubts. You look at the uh, the, the line, the line in Vegas is only, I think it was two and a half, now it's three. That's a pretty small line for being at home against a two and four team. So, obviously, people have some doubts. I agree, going into the buys, it's huge for you. If you can stack another win up, all things you're saying this past week now are double, like the confidence, and we're okay with our group, and we can move forward, and all our things we want are still out there. So, that's even more true if we are five and two going into a bye week. Are your readers and subscribers talking about the Eagle fans coming to Vegas? We're going to see a few out here, aren't we? Yeah, it's always fun, man. It's a fun, it's a fun uh, impassioned fan base, so it's always good when they go face-to-face uh, in the stands. Thanks, Vic. We'll see you Sunday. Appreciate your time. All right, but take care. All right, Vic Tafer, fantastic. He's got a lot of content. Subscribe to The Athletic to read what Vic's doing to get that elite content that he has. He's got a lot of sources inside the Raiders. Had a lot of inf- interesting information about the transition in the coaching staff, and we appreciate him coming in here. You know, it, it's just, you look at this game, and Vic laughed off, you know, laughing about Philadelphia. I'm laughing it off. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law. So my wife's sister's coming out tonight to get in here about 11 o'clock midnight tonight, and they're staying with us, and they're Eagle fans. And we got them tickets, and it's our treat. They're going to stay with us, and we're cool because they're family. This is my family. They're coming in, and they're Eagle fans. And the reason they're coming is when the schedule came out, I forget when exactly we knew the Eagles were coming. First phone call, boom. And it was easy because I don't have a boat of tickets. I don't have 30 tickets for friends. I used to have a few up in Oakland, but not the case here in Vegas anymore. I'm a season ticket holder, and these tickets cost cash. As Randy Moss once said, straight cash homie. These tickets are not cheap. You give these tickets away, you want something back in return. Either cash or you want dinner or a lot of drinks, right? These are expensive tickets. So when the Eagle fans are coming in, they want to spend money. And and the typical text I get is, JT, can you help me out with tickets for the Bengals game? And I say, not really. I mean, they're all sold. It's sold out. They're not available. You can't walk up to the box office and talk to a lady or a guy and say, hey, remember back in the day if you ever did this, you'd go, hey, Bobby, do you remember this? You went to a lot of games back in the day when you were growing up where you'd go to the window at the ticket or for a concert. I remember this with concerts, Bobby, where you'd be able to look at a chart and they'd tell you what tickets were available when you wanted to buy tickets to a concert or a sporting event. Oh, yeah. I, t- I tell the story about how I walked up to the garden when Bob Seger was going to be playing in the show. It had been sold out for months. I was buying tickets to another concert. I walk up to the guy and just being a smart ass, I go, hey, you got anything for Seger tonight? He goes, here, I got two obstructed view. You want them? I'm like, yeah, I'll take them. Yeah, it, it was crazy growing up as kids when you wanted to get tickets and you actually had to wait in line. 
You had to wait in line in Long Island in the rain at the Coliseum or at a record shop. And you'd uh-huh. wait in line, and then you'd be able to buy the tickets. And you didn't have a credit card or a phone. You'd have to have cash to do it. It was an effort to go to games. I've slept and, out in back of the garden at least yes. five or six times for different concerts. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm telling you, the kids today, oh, back in the day, get off my lawn. Remember, don't, don't tell me to get off your lawn. I have more fun than anyone you know on the radio. I'm going to the Rolling Stones in the pit. In the pit for the Rolling Stones on November 6th. I go to games. I go to games. And I love going to sporting events, but tickets now are expensive. So the Eagle fans who get their hands on tickets, they are paying a premium. And Eric Allen, my partner on the pre and post game show, he's there. I think he's got ten family members coming in for this game. I'll tell you, and Eric. I'll, I'll tell you how different a day it used to be. I used to be able to walk up to Fenway Park and just buy a bleacher seat off some guy for five sure. bucks. Nothing to it. If I wanted to go to a Celtic game, I didn't buy tickets. I went to the bar across the street, waited for the game to start, waited for the scalpers to come in. I buy a ticket for ten bucks right up in the balcony every yeah, time. Yeah, I remember when it got tough too. We didn't get in college and afterwards. I remember it getting tough over the last twenty years, where you'd really have to be, you really have to be sharp to find good seats and. I think one of the most frustrating things to do now is buy tickets for a concert online. Oh, yeah. And you get into these waiting rooms, and then you're in the waiting room, and then you get your ticket, and then you got to get your card ready and do all that. But it's all done now through apps. The Raiders, the Raiders are fabulous at this at 1-800-RAIDERS. Whenever I'm in the building, I go by the ticket guys and gals. They're on the phone with headsets. They're taking phone call after phone call. And as I've told you again, there's some opportunities for you to give up your tickets and upgrade to suites and get a bunch of people to go in on a suite. And the price point is better than you think for concerts or big events. So call 1-800-RAIDERS, 1-800-RAIDERS, ask for a representative, and just they'll talk you through it. They'll tell you exactly what you need to do to upgrade or to do that. Hey, Mike in Staten, Italy. What's going on, Mikey? How you been? Hey, JT, great. I, you're hitting home with me. I used to have a corner record store, a record store, and waited overnight for Springsteen tickets, and he would have nine shows at the Meadowlands. And I would wait online and luckily get him. Like, all you would hear is rumors like day three, day four is already sold out. But that hits. Hey, JT, I got to tell you this. Great job by the Las Vegas Knights. Uh, it's, they sold out. We were worried about how their attendance would be with the Raiders. Mm. Game three of the season, two of their stars are down, and they put 18,000 in the crowd. I think that's a great sign for Major League Baseball and the NBA coming to Vegas. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not a baseball fan coming to Vegas. I've never been one. I think it's too hot. I don't think anybody's interested in the A's. I don't think for a four-game series, Kansas City and the A's over four nights, I want to see a 45,000-seat ballpark. But other people disagree. It's good for business. It's good for the economy here. Hey, Mikey, you're in Staten, Italy. I'm going to New York next week. You can go to a Met game or a Yankee game in the summer. You can't go here. I can do it at the Aviator game with some misters and do it there. Do people want to go to baseball games in Henderson in mid-July and August? I'm not going, and I'm damn sure it's not going to see the A's who treated the Raiders like garbage up in Oakland negotiating behind their back. They don't get my support. Uh, well, that, that's a point. I'm a baseball fan first, JT, and I'm a diehard. I'll, I'll go to the game. Listen, I love the AAA stadium. Uh, again, yes. I love this. Hey, JT, uh, with this line movement, uh, the gamblers are giving the Raiders a lot of respect. You Again, I know me and you argue on what's a half a point here or there, but that number three in the line is a big movement, and that means all the sharp betters are on the Raiders. And uh, 
Hey, JT, I look back in the last... Wait, wait, Mikey, hold on. My, yeah. Mike, why is it only three? Why isn't it the Raiders at home? You get three for being at home. Why isn't it the Raiders minus four and a half going to five? This is the Eagles at two and four, Mike. Yeah, uh, well, you look you look inside those numbers the, uh, with, with the Eagles. Let's Three to five, again, JT, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. The numbers are two and a half, three, six. Six and a half and seven. Mm. So again, don't get uh, wait. Public money is going to come. I guarantee you, the game goes to four, four and a half uh, by game time. Uh, JT, I have my sold my two tickets for this Eagle game was the second game I sold opening night, and then this were the two most expensive tickets. The Philly fans are going to ruin that stadium. What'd you get? What'd you get? You were all friends here. You're a regular. What'd you, you sold your tickets, your season ticket yes. holder. What'd you sell your, your Eagles tickets for? I, I got nine fifty a ticket for the two tickets each. That's what I'm paying for the stones. <laughs> <laughs> Close to yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, good. Really? JT, I think they win this game. And again, JT, I'll say it to you again. If I told you before the bye, uh, before the season, we'd be 5-2 and two going into the bye, how many times would you have signed up for it? All day long. Thanks, Mikey. Appreciate the call. Thank you. All day long, I'd sign up for 5-2 and two going into the bye and then the Giants on the other side. But... Again, I was very uh, wasn't super confident against Chicago. I, I just think the Raiders have to take care of business. Breaking news here from Pro Football Talk. Pro Football Talk. Five minutes ago, John Gruden tells a producer from HBO Sports, "Quote: The truth will come out." Also, one minute ago, Pro Football Talk. Full John Gruden quote to HBO via Andrea Kramer. Quote. People who know me and know what I stand for for 58 years. I have a resume of 58 years. The truth will come out. Remember, Andrea Kramer did the feature on Mark Davis recently on HBO Real Sports. So there's more to this story, and this just broke a few minutes ago. Mike Florio said we haven't heard much from John Gruden since he abruptly resigned. Uh, HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumbel has heard a little bit more. Andrea Kramer, who recently profiled Raiders owner Mark Davis for the show, explains on the latest episode of Real Sports Podcast that a producer recently cold-called Gruden. Maggie Burbank, who produced the story that we just did on Mark Davis, she actually called Gruden, and he picked up the phone. Much do I think of her surprise, Kramer said, and he's still in Las Vegas. He says he's letting the dust settle. He said people who know me, Know what I stand for for 58 years. I have a resume of 58 years. He said, the truth will come out. It's certainly cryptic. From Pro Football Talk a few minutes ago. 702-365-9200. Joe in Mississippi on the Raiders mobile app. Hello, Joe. Hey, JT. Thanks for taking my call. What a what Thank a you. breaking news story that would be. Um, but... I got a question. So, I was so, first of all, so impressed that the Raiders win on Sunday. I mean, just grit, pride and poise, all the things we talk about, Just that's what you come out and do. Um, but I'm worried. I'm not worried about the season. I'm worried about the off season. and I wanted to ask your opinion on this. So I know, you're, I know you know Mark. I know you know Mike. I know you know those guys in the building. Yep. Let's say the Raiders have a best-case scenario season. They say that, let's say they make the playoffs. Uh, Derek plays at a near MVP level like he was. Uh, going in at three and uh, when we were three and zero, oh. uh, what is the likelihood you think that Mark tries to keep this staff together uh, and move forward? Because like Derek's in a contract year too, so you got to pay him. 
and try to keep this this staff together because Derek going into his ninth year, I don't think I don't think he wants a new system going into his ninth year. So. Yeah, it's a very good What's question. The Mark keeps the staff going. Yeah. Uh, very fair question. I, you know, again, that's a very difficult question. No one knows what Mark Davis is going to be thinking about ten weeks from now. But I like Rich Pasaccia. I believe that men and women, if they prove that they're worthy of a promotion, should get the job. I, re- I really am a big believer yeah. of that. And if Rich Pasaccia can keep this team together and they win and they make the playoffs, I would hope he get an opportunity to come back and coach the team again. And you made a really good point. It's a very good staff. I mean, they just locked up Gus Bradley. The coaching staff, who I know well, Johnny Morton, Greg Olson, they are really good coaches at this level in this league. And then Ron Malias and some of the other coaches they brought in are fantastic. So I'd like to see yeah. this coaching staff stay intact as long as possible. But it's a record business, as you know, my friend, Joe. You've got to win games. You've got to prove that you're a playoff team. And these next couple of weeks are going to be a big test for all the coaches. Absolutely. I just I just would hate the 30 for 30 that would be about the Raiders Super Bowl run mm-hmm. that ended with a rebuild. That would be that would, I would hate that 30 for 30, you know, if, it, if they decided to go in a different direction. But anyway, thanks for taking yeah. my call, JT. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Work. Appreciate it. It's a, it's tough. I don't I don't know any of this again. Mark Davis has never I've eaten dinner with Mark. I've traveled with Mark. He's never sat down and asked me who should be the coach. And uh, and I have so much respect for Mark on what he does and the decisions that he's going to make going forward. I could just tell you this from the view that I have. This organization has worked around the clock through a bunch of adversity to try to deliver a better product to the fans. I think they have. That had a lot to do with the previous coach, now the current coach, everyone behind the scenes. Everybody is working towards that goal. And now another big test of the Eagles are in town, and you've got to take them out. JT, we continue one more segment to go. Bridgewater from the gun on third down. Going to fire deep towards Sutton, and it's intercepted. Picked off at the 20-yard line. Merrick, the center fielder, back to the 30, back to the 40, back to the 45, back into Bronco territory at the 45-yard line. And the rookie, Trayvon Merrick from TCU, turns the lights out. And the Orange Crush heads for the exits here in Mile High. What a performance by the Raiders. No one puts a bow on a game like the legendary Brent Musburger. Nobody. No one has more experience. No one's called more games. How cool is that? I want to thank my friend Steve Gomez and the Modelo crew. I guess they dropped off a load of beverages at my house. My wife just came into my studio with a Modelo jersey. And she said, uh, this was out front. We need a couple of loads to bring in the house. So... Everybody knows I have a bucket of Modelo on Friday. Last week I had two buckets because of what uh, we went through. And now this weekend we'll drink Modelo. It's still, it's, still, it's still cool. It's getting cool out here, but still getting in the pool. Still enjoying the weather. Some golf. Our buddies at Five Iron Golf and uh, the bucket of Modellos will be flowing this weekend. Uh, we have the Bolitnikov crab feed tomorrow night, Friday night at Paris. I talked to Fred today and his wife, Angela. Uh, they have uh, about 300-plus people, a great turnout coming. 
If you're a Raider fan and you're looking for something to do last second, I would mosey over over to the Paris to see who's going to be over there. It's going to be a great event. Fred and Angela do a lot for young girls who are in really tough spots in their life. I've been a part of the Blitnikoff Foundation either as a board member or helping out through most of my career. And it's very fulfilling to see the golf tournament, which I emcee, and this event coming up on Friday that Lincoln Kennedy emcees. And Lincoln's got his hands full because he's got Danny Serafin's band. Danny is the founder of Chicago, so the band is brilliant. And then there's people from all over the country who are there, and Lincoln keeps that party going, and it's a lot of fun. And it's a great family event. It's all-you-can-eat crab, fresh crab. And Fred and Angela have that relationship, and they bring in the best food. So people are just cracking crab for a long time eating, and there's music, and people are up at the bar and having a good time. And this is the first time it'll ever be in Vegas. So that'll be great as everybody's excited about that. I'll be over at our buddy One Steak, J-O-D, over at Virgin. Great spot over the weekend, too. And I got family in town on my wife's side, and we got to show them around in Vegas. You got to show everybody what's happening here in Vegas And we're excited about that early morning hike over at Red Rock. If you haven't been out there in a while, it's fun to get out over there. Not too far from here. I'm going to show them the area. They haven't been here in a few years, so they haven't seen the new baseball stadium by my home, the new ballpark. We'll show them around that. And then a great weekend. Hopefully the weather looks fantastic and it holds up. So tomorrow my conversation with Ritz Passaccia, I interviewed him earlier today. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the past. He does not want to do that. He's not a guy who gives himself a lot of glory. He just won't. But that ideal situation, it was not ideal for that coaching staff. It was for the players. The players put the noise behind them, and they came out and played great in Denver. The coaching staff had a lot of work because of their ties with the former coach to focus on that game plan, and they outcoached Vic Fangio and his staff. And they don't want to talk about it. They're very humble about that as they move on. I thought what they did pregame, it's great because they started fast, and whatever halftime adjustments they made really worked well. And that was the first time that Rich Passaccia had to go through halftime adjustments, and I thought he pulled it off. It showed up with the score and the outcome of the game. You know, the defensive line is special. The job that Gus Bradley has done with that unit in just one off season is remarkable. And it started up front. Few teams in the league have gotten after the quarterback like the Raiders have. And it's led to so many opportunities with turnovers and the big plays, the three interceptions in that game. And they won that battle with four turnovers to none. Uh, Coach and I talked about consistency. Okay, he doesn't care about emotion. That's not his thing. He just wants the team to be very consistent and continue to stack wins and play consistent football. Cut down on mistakes and do what you're doing better week to week. And that's what Derek Carr said if you listen closely. Now, I think the Eagles are going to be very similar to the Bears. I do. The Raiders are going to face off against another young dual-threat quarterback. And Justin Fields only threw for a little over 100 yards, but he was a threat making plays on third down. Jalen Hurts will look to utilize his talent as a runner even more. Now, from the Eagles, and we talked to Howard Eskin yesterday, he says they're going to try to run the ball more with running backs. But that'll be the first time it happens. This kid, Jalen Hurts, is second only to Lamar Jackson in attempts and yards for a quarterback and already has five touchdowns on the ground through six weeks, which is the most by any signal caller. So on the defensive side, I've been pointing out about the linebackers all week. Linebackers better have a good game. When I jump on that postgame show, 
I better not be talking to Eric Allen about where was Littleton. I don't want to have to look for Littleton anymore. I don't want to have to look for Littleton. He was paid an enormous amount of money to be a pro bowler, not to be a linebacker who's just going to kind of fit a need. Littleton came over from the Rams to be a pro bowler. This is a game that he's got to play well. The defensive linebackers have to play outstanding if the Raiders are going to win. And don't forget Devontae Smith. I mentioned Fred Bolitnikoff, the Bolitnikoff Award winner, the Heisman Trophy winner. Hertz has a Heisman Trophy winner on the outside to throw to. And for the Raiders, I think Casey Hayward's got to be on him and try to take him out of the game. And finally, Raider Nation. It's the first game for the head coach in his home building. Make him proud. Get in there early. Celebrate Raider Nation. Get up to the torch. Say hello during the pregame show and experience what a Legion Stadium is all about. So when the Raiders come out of that tunnel for the first time in Vegas with Rich Passaccia, the place is roaring. The place is roaring, and it sounds and feels like a Raiders home game. There's going to be plenty of more Raider fans than Eagle fans, but the Eagle fans are going to be loud, and they're going to be drunk because they're the dirty, stinking, green, drunk birds of Philadelphia. They drink more. They're louder. They're more belligerent. They're Eagles fans. This is their DNA from their parents to their grandparents. They're loud and obnoxious. They love their team, and they're intense. They're not just looking, walking around, taking selfies of the torch. They want to win this game, and this is a do-or-die game. I don't see the Eagles surviving if they go 2-5. and five. They're already playing as a wild-card contender at best because I think Dallas is a much better team. Hell of a show, hell of a week for Bobby. Thanks to Seth Wickersham, who joined us. Jim Donovan, the voice of the Browns. Vic Tafer, who was really good. Tomorrow, Jim Plunkett will join us, along with Jim Trotter, who also has a lot to say about the emails and the treatment of the Raiders by the NFL. Always good to get Jim Trotter on the show. Thanks to all of our partners, everybody who listens. Without your audience, without you and supporting our sponsors, we do not have a radio show. And good to see the radio show up in lights. They put Raider Nation Radio outside Allegiant Stadium on the big billboard, so you'll see that when you drive by on the 15. Have a great night, everybody. I'm on every night, 7 to 10 p.m. on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM 82. We'll see you back here tomorrow.